Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then we're up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Thursday, the 23rd of November. Coming up on our program, the worsening logistics situation at the Durban port. Black Friday madness has started. Is it time, we ask, to review the entire concept? What the president means when he talks about speeding up the decolonization of education, a leading financial institution on the controversy around the two-pot retirement system. And there's a brand new survey out that says more and more women are defending themselves against violence. Let's start with this. The Transnet rail and port crisis is threatening to collapse South Africa's entire export sector and, by extension, the national economy. That's a blunt assessment today from the Democratic Alliance. Senior economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council, Tabili Nkunjana, says the delays are a cause for concern and the cost to the economy, I imagine, is now running into tens of millions, tens of, millions of rand a day. Nkunjana joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Very warm welcome to you. Are we able to quantify it uh, at this point, the estimated daily financial loss to the economy? Uh, good afternoon to you, uh, Jeremy, and uh, thanks for having me again. So, you know, the, the the port issue in South Africa area has been coming an issue for some time. Um, and, of course, there have been numbers, you know, that have been thrown around in terms of the daily you know, uh, losses in exports, you know, some, and, and, and this, it is, of course, uh, different across, you know, industries. But when one is looking into the entire economy, it is estimated, you know, you can go to as higher as a billion per year. And now imagine uh, for a country that is struggling economically and we are making such losses, then that is why I was saying this is a cause for a serious concern because it is just something that South Africa at this stage cannot afford. It's extraordinary that it's been allowed to get to the state. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And the sad thing is, um, you know, uh, at, at recent times, we, we have been talking about, you know, this, uh, especially after the 2020 COVID situation, because remember, the, the, the collapse of the of the ports and the rail in general, it became uh, clear after, you know, the, the COVID-19 when there was a significant vandalism on all the, you know, the railways. And that, of course, it is somehow it showed the reliance in terms of the transportation that we had on rails. And that, that exposed the ports inefficiencies in a number of ways in terms of them not being equipped, you know, to cater for, for trucks, for instance, in, and the goods that South Africa increases and exports every year. Let's look at your particular area of expertise, if we can. How are these delays and inefficiencies impacting the agricultural sector specifically? 
Um, it's, it's quite a saddening one, um, Jeremy, at this stage, because, for instance, we are the we are within a season to export, you know, the the products such as uh, stone fruit, your uh, your peaches, your plums, apricots, and, and a number of them. And and for South Africa, given that it South Africa is such a, a huge or at least a significant uh, supplier of these products, uh, South Africa has developed uh, markets for some for some time now, and something that we would like to maintain given that, you know, uh, there are aspirations to increase these productions and of these products and, of course, expanding our footprint to the market. So it is quite a situation where uh, at this stage, uh, you know, remember uh, the agricultural sector, it has been shown and proven for a couple of times that it is such an improvement, such an important sector, not only to feed the consumers, but, of course, for the job creations. Uh, look at recent numbers now, that will show. So I'm assuming members of the council will then be looking at the situation and saying, well, what alternatives are there for me to get my fruit out of the country? What are they saying to you? Um, at this stage, there's just a lot of uh, concern for, for for generally everyone in South Africa, especially those that are directly in the you know the stakeholders and of course the producers themselves. You would imagine or also know that the, the agricultural products in general they are very perishable. So when your product is ready for the market and it is we have already signed you know paperwork for it is destined for a particular market, you are in a hurry to make sure that your products are in transit to that. And once you receive news like the current ones that you're experiencing now that, you know, there are congestions in all the key ports, specifically Cape Town and Deben, and those are the two uh, ports that are very important for the actual products in general to be going to these markets. And that's a very much something that we should be concerned about. And also given that at this stage, we are competing with the uh, markets such as, you know, the South American countries like your Chile's, those are top producers and suppliers of this. The moment to lose a bit of the market is going to be difficult for us to be able to get to those markets because they're going to be have made they have made some serious strides to stay there and of course they have proven themselves to be a reliable supplier of this product so it is a concern and of course it is a growing some it is something that is, is growing with time but we are hoping that there is has to be some situation of course there are uh, talks and there are you know suggestions and all that but at this stage it's not working because we need you know, solutions as we are talking now. You talk about competing nations. Are you able to quantify the percentage loss of market share for the agricultural sector if the situation perpetuates? So generally, uh, for instance, if, if we are to talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 at this stage are saying like now we are uh, just finished the citrus. For citrus, South Africa is the second uh, supplier of the products to the world after Spain. And then, of course, Egypt is coming in closely. And that's something that that's another competitor that would like to run away from. And when we go to the likes of avocados, for instance, uh, South Africa is still up there and is still in the top, uh, at least uh, in the top countries uh, that are exporting these products. I cannot specifically put the number at this stage, but the issue is our top producers, top uh, competitors, like uh, in the southern part of the world, like the Peru countries, Peru, uh, you know, uh, Kenya and Tanzania, those countries are making strides and they are increasing, they are pulling, you know, uh, uh, greatly compared to South Africa because of, you know, some of their production. And also, of course, they have better, you know, infrastructures to support their producers to get their products into these markets and 
for the apples south africa is a top within the top uh five countries the pairs and all those products that are going to these countries south africa remains with the top 10 almost all of the fruits that i just told you about so it is important that mm. irrespective of how small it is here but globally when you compare it to other countries south africa remains a top uh supplier and it has developed markets that we should not be uh, losing it at any given stage for now. I can see why this is such a cause for concern for the industry. Tabili and Kunjana, thank you very much indeed. Let's push the story a little further and hear from the Democratic Alliance's Dr. Mimi Gondwe, who sent us this voice note. The evolving transnet rail and port crisis threatening to collapse South Africa's entire export sector and by extension the national economy. Within the next few days, the DA demands a multi-agency response to map out the bottlenecks at ports with a view to providing interim measures that will provide relief to the affected parties. The DA is therefore calling for, amongst other things, a public address by the National Logistics Crisis Committee on steps being taken by the national government to resolve the ongoing port crisis. A clear plan from Transnet to expedite the processing of ships at ports, including the repair and maintenance of port infrastructure. A national summit comprising stakeholders in the export sector, transnet and government to find solutions that will resolve the ongoing crisis while offering long-term interventions to make our port operations more efficient. Last week, the DA wrote to the chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Public Enterprises and requested that the committee undertake urgent oversight visits to the Durban and Cape Town ports. Today, the committee has again written to the chairperson of the committee to request that in addition to the oversight to the Durban and Cape Town port, the committee also undertake an urgent oversight to the Richards Bay port. It is imperative that Parliament plays its role uh, to fill the leadership void that has been created by an effective ANC government and now threatens to collapse the economy. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to stay with economic stress and brace yourself and I guess your wallets where those plastic inmates are likely to work overtime this weekend. And let me tell you, the madness has already started. It's Black Friday weekend. But as they say, caveat emptor, buyer beware. The Debt Rescue Organization says consumers should opt for making online purchases to help avoid unnecessary spending during the festive season. But how easy is that to actually achieve? The Chief Executive Officer, Neil Rutz, is with me now. And Neil, given the temptations of Black Friday deals, what kind of strategies then are you recommending for consumers to avoid the inevitable overspending well the most important thing for consumers to do during this time is to first of all draw up a festive season budget making sure that you know how much money you have available to spend during this festive season and then if there's anything that you really need you can look for that during black friday but it's better to do that online and make sure that you know where to find the specific item and then pay for it online because once you go into the retail shops and stores that's where it becomes very difficult to say no to all the deals that's available and what we also recommend is that uh, if you have to go into the retailers themselves once again identify what it is that you need to buy and want to buy and you're going to know what that will cost Take the money in cash and leave all your cards at home because people tend to overspend on their credit cards or 
retailers even give them credits nowadays to spend money that they just do not have. Neil, this is all good advice, but you and I both know that uh, people don't do that, do they? Unfortunately not. And I think we, we believe that it's got to do with the fact that it's, you know, coming at the end of the year, people had a hard year and they feel that they deserve this and they can spoil themselves and they can spoil their family. And yes, it's it's true that it is very nice to do that, but you don't have to spend money to enjoy your festive season, your holidays and fall for these specials. So during these times, it's it's very important for people to be creative in that regard. It's not always necessary mm-hmm. to spend money, but unfortunately, we are all caught up in this hype called Black Friday and uh, people feel that they getting specials. So uh, it's nothing wrong to spend the money, but unfortunately, they have to budget and make sure that they do have the money available. Neil, scare me with some numbers and the bigger the better. How indebted are South Africans right now as we come to the end of the year? Yeah, unfortunately, South Africans are very over-indebted. So if we look at the credit active consumers, almost 50% of all credit active consumers are over-indebted, meaning that they are in arrears with at least three payments on one of their accounts. So that just adds to how difficult this situation is and how dangerous Black Friday can be for people. So impulse buying, as you've just said to me, is significant during sales like this. The issue, of course, is to discipline themselves, as you've said, to stick to shopping lists. But if they don't, people experience regret after indulging in sales like Black Friday. How do you deal with the financial aftermath of overspending? Well, we are very fortunate in South Africa and with regards to the remedies available for over-indebtedness, the most important of which is debt counselling, which has proven itself over the last 10 or 12 years. Um, And it's helped thousands of people to pay off their debt in an affordable manner without losing their assets. And that's the process of debt counselling. So people must familiarize themselves with the rights that they do have and the processes that exist in South Africa. And uh, we, like I said, we're very fortunate to have this process. It's the best of its kind in the world. We, for instance, the only country in the world where you can actually place your home loan under debt review. Do you think, Neil Roots, that retailers themselves are a little irresponsible at a time like this? Uh, We know they use tactics to encourage spending during Black Friday. How would consumers avoid that? Yeah, we believe that uh, retailers are definitely reckless in this regard, and they are enticing people to spend money that they do not have. They're giving out credit very easily to people and the assessments uh, where the people are in a position to pay back that, that, uh, that credit are done very quickly because they just want to get the numbers up and they make provision for defaults that will follow. But the reality is we're seeing people becoming over-indebted as a result of that. We have a lot of people in South Africa that find themselves on the knife's edge. So something small like this, just overspending on one day or a weekend can actually push them into poverty and becoming over-indebted. And to top all of that, retailers has now extended Black Friday from one day to, uh, in some cases, to a week, in some cases, to a month, 
So it's very hard for people to say no for all these deals around them. Just a very quick answer. Do you think it's overreaching to say that the whole Black Friday concept needs a review then? No, it's definitely not overreaching. I believe that it does need a review because it does not benefit the over-indebted consumers in South Africa, of which we have millions. Neil Rutz, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Chief Executive Officer at Debt Rescue. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, you'll be aware, and we have reported on this in the past, that Parliament's Finance Committee has decided to maintain the original implementation date of the two-part retirement system of 1 March next year. Retirement reform executive at Old Mutual, Michelle Acton, is with me now. She says her company is disappointed. Michelle, why the concern? I think it's about a timing. I I mean, good afternoon. And um, we support the two-part. I think that the changes that are are needed are very, very important, will add massive value. However, we're now November. (laughs) We're November of 2023, and they're wanting these changes to be implemented in March 2024. I mean, that gives us basically three, three and a half months to be ready. And the amount of change and readiness that is required for retirement fund administrators is massive. But it's also exceptionally dependent on finalized regulations and legislation, as well as things like SARS and the FSCA to be ready. Now, if the legislation hasn't even been finalized yet, because they were discussing it at the Standing Committee of Finance on Tuesday, then it's very difficult to go ahead and start building everything and getting ready if you're not quite 100% guaranteed on what you're building it on. So so the concern is very much around rushing something this size and this important um, over the fact that we want to bring in something that's going to be good and work really well and sustainable in the long term. Explain to me what the risk of rushing is. So, so essentially, I think one of the big challenges is around making sure um, our systems can calculate it and do it properly. I mean, we are dealing with members' money here. Um, and essentially, the amount of change that needs to come through is quite significant. And a good example is, as, you, as you're probably aware, the two-part system means that members will be able to come and access retirement funds before retirement and not have to resign to do it. So there's going to be enabled a lot more frequent transactions allowed. Now, part of that transaction, so if I need to pay you some money out of your retirement fund, one of the things I need to be able to do is apply to SARS for the tax amount I must pay on that before I can pay it over to you. Now, SARS, for example, hasn't finished building their systems around how that tax process is going to work. So one March will happen, and we can't pay you your retirement benefit because SARS is not ready to um, tell us how much tax to pay. So I think it's just going to create a massive amount of uncertainty in the industry and confusion, let alone the fact that there's quite a lot of work that also needs to happen around helping members actually understand what this is about and how it's actually going to work. Michelle, I'm just wondering to myself if big financial institutions haven't been caught a little wrong-footed here. Surely you would have been preparing this for a long time. We've known about the concept and uh, that uh, measures should have been in place even preemptively. So the answer to that is yes. I mean, we have been working on this this whole year. So basically from the beginning of the year, we've been building systems um, to be ready for this. But you can't build all of the system changes and all of the final things until the regulations finalize. So, for example, there's still certain things that haven't been confirmed yet, and they'll only be confirmed when the regulation is gazetted. 
Um, so how do you build a process and a legal process if you don't know what it's going to be? So we're expecting realistically that this, this new tax legislation will be gazetted in January next year. That means at that point that is confirmed this is what the law says to go live in March. So we've built everything that's within our control, but there are questions around how certain things are going to work. So what, what are, aspect, Michelle, what are those certain, certain things that you need confirmation on? So, so, for example, just a few things. So, for example, the one is, of course, we need to get our rules approved. You know, you, if you're going to make these changes, it means you need to amend your pension fund rules. And that needs to be approved by FSCA. They can't approve them until the regulations are finalized. Until the regulations are finalized, we can't even submit them. So that's just a small thing. The biggest impact is, of course, the, the, the SARS process. So there's a new tax process that's going to come into play. We don't even know what that tax process is because SARS hasn't finished it yet. And another element is around the changes to, for example, the Pension Fund Act. We've had discussions and the conversation that happened at the Standing Committee of Finance on Tuesday discussed the Tax Act and the changes there. But we haven't seen the final changes to the Pension Fund Act, and both those legislations need to change to enable this. So I think it's something that as an industry we'd be doing our best to get ready, but we have also been calling from the beginning to say we need this legislation urgently. We need it coming through. And it's taken a very long time to get the legislation to where it is now to get it finalized. Um, but the challenge is I think they've made it nearly impossible for the industry to be ready because we know members are going to want their money on day one, right? That's really the big pressure here is if we're saying the effective date is 1 March, members are going to say, right, on 1 March, that means I can go claim some of my retirement fund money. And there's not going to be a retirement fund administrator that's going to be in a mm. position that can pay that claim until SARS has finished the processes of their system right. so we can get the tax directives and stuff from them. Michelle Acton, thank you very much indeed from Old Mutual. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Overnight, President Ramaphosa calling on teachers to join students and learners in the debate on what he calls the decolonization of education. Ramaphosa says many countries on the continent need to deal with the impact of this concept, which has plunged them into crisis. Basil Manuel is the executive director of the National Professional Teachers Organization of South Africa, and he's with me now. And how do you firstly define a decolonized education system and what would be the core components compared to the current way of doing things? Well, the Naptosa view that we have constantly put out there is one where we see the, the Eurocentric nature of our curriculum, first of all, changing. But also, even the structure needs to be looked at differently. But however, we identify that our very teachers have been schooled in a system that has perpetuated this colonized type of system. So they too and their thinking about education in a new world needs to be addressed as well. How does the current system manifest itself in the classroom then? Currently, our our systems are very much still talking to, in South Africa's context, the European milieu, where we have not even started addressing the historical education developments within South Africa, starting with the Iron Age, where we ourselves had 
smelting plants, etc. And those are unrecognized as though they didn't happen. But more so too, we concentrate more on European history and in latter years American history and things like that, where in fact we need to be looking at the continent first develop a strong sense of the African culture within our our education system. And then, of course, you can't ignore the other. It has to be inclusive and developmental. But with one that only looks at what happens on the other side, you then tend to create the impression that good is Europe or America, and then secondary comes Africa. It's extraordinary that no changes have been made after almost 30 years of democracy. I think I would be unfair if I said no changes have been made, but I think we must recognize that change has been very, very slow, primarily also because the very people that are championing education, people like myself included, have been schooled in a system that is different to what we are proposing. And so changing the thinking of people is far more difficult than making structural and such other changes. However, there is good intent currently flowing around, and I think that the pace will improve. So what specific changes need to be made in the short term then as far as the curriculum is concerned? We have proposed that we need to start looking at the curriculum as a whole, first of all, and discuss what we see as the deficit in terms of decolonizing it. And because you can't simply just start scratching out things. We've also got to ensure that we start with things like language. Jeremy, one of the biggest problems in South Africa is that we always complain about the performance of children, but we don't take into account that one of the biggest colonizing heritages has been that we are sitting in an English world, and English is extremely important, but nowhere in the world are children taught in a tongue that is not their mother tongue, and unless we address the mother tongue issue, and for Naptoza, that is first prize. Let's look at how we address in a much greater, more comprehensive way, mother tongue instruction and a transition at a stage where research is showing would be more appropriate because we know we can't forget English because it's the language Mm. of not only the economy but also jurisprudence and the world. And if we start with language, we certainly will find it easier to address some of the other things. So what kind of training then, and I guess resources, will teachers need to effectively deliver the uh, concept that you're talking to me about? One of the biggest stumbling blocks at the moment is that we don't have enough teachers who can teach in the various vernacular And that is the biggest stumbling block. As unions, we've been addressing universities. As recent as last week, we were talking about the the curricula at the universities where there are very few universities that are even offering African languages as subjects or subjects that can be taken uh, as majors to a major level. And that is where our first problem lies because we've got to create the pool of teachers. And already it it says to you that this doesn't happen overnight. It takes a couple of years to train a teacher. But we're sitting on the edge of a possible shortage of teachers. 
So now we are saying to our Funza Lushaka, which is a bursary system within the department, let us start directing that to the needs we are going to have. One of those needs, language teachers, teachers of the languages mm. of our learners. The fact that I speak Zulu doesn't mean I'm a Zulu teacher. We're underscoring that. So that is a starting point, but you will concede, Basil, that moving towards a decolonized system is also socio-politically tricky uh, because you would need to ensure the representation and inclusion of diverse cultures and histories in South Africa. That could be contested terrain, surely. It is vastly contested. And let me illustrate that by example. We have seen that there is an unusual attack even on Afrikaans and we are saying what are we doing if we want to talk about mother tongue instruction Afrikaans must be protected in the same way it mustn't be elevated to be different and special we want Afrikaans not to be lost as a mother tongue we want others to become like Afrikaans and as you said it's so contested people see this as a protectionism whilst we are saying it's not protectionism it is part of the bigger plan that you bring the others up you don't destroy what you currently have Basil Manuel, thank you very much indeed, Executive Director of the National Professional Teachers Organization of South Africa. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. I want to end with this, and I think this is really good news. More women are defending themselves against violence, according to the annual research report conducted by the Whitaker Pierce and Development Initiative. It's found the number of women defending themselves increasing by just over 10% from uh, last year. More now from uh, Sipati Siwed Lamini, who is with the initiative. So what factors then are contributing to this increase in reporting? Oh, thank you so much, uh, Jeremy. You know, let me just thank, firstly like to thank um, our founders, BNP Paribas and RCS, for commissioning this survey on, on our behalf as WPDI because it helps us to, you know, better understand the situation right. in the communities. And, um, you know, there's quite a lot of organizations out there, you know, um, different social platforms that are, all right, raising awareness um, is one way. Um, um, obviously, I'm trying to spread a clear message of zero tolerance of all forms of violence, and also um, educating and empowering women on on their rights. You know, and letting them understand that there are various support services available to them, and um, also them to understand that um, in the process, we also help them to understand that if. If um, any form of violence is not reported, it becomes worse. And um, I mean, also community dialogues also play a pivotal role, you know, to create a great platform for them to share uh, great uh, ideas of how they can find a sustainable solution to the problem. Obviously, it's still not enough, though. Much needs to be done, and it's critical that a positive trajectory like this is maintained. Mm, Completely, I agree. So how do you do that? Um, like I said, we, we, we as an organization, we, we are out there and um, in the process, we, we like educating them, like I said before, um, and this helps them for them to feel empowered, to understand that they have um, actually the rights and um, obviously having the support services, like I mentioned, available to them. There's a real economic impact as well, isn't there? You talk about something called presenteeism in workplaces and the need for corporates to have strategies to uh, address this particular issue. In other words, how does violence impact on 
showing up and doing your job? Um, I, th- I can say presentism is real. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's very difficult for, for one to see because one can be physically at work, but they are psychologically disengaged. Um, and so um, because of, obviously, the community violence that they are experiencing out there, and this has a negative impact on their mental well-being. And so uh, we have counseling and therapy services that we offer not only to the workers, but also to the community at large. Well, in the country that is battling with gender-based violence, the fact that more women are defending themselves against violence is very good news indeed. Sipati Siwe Dlamini, thank you very much indeed from the Whitaker Peace Development Initiative. Uh, we're going to leave it there for today. Very quickly, other stories on our radar. Times Live reporting the two of the country's largest consumer credit reporting agencies, TransUnion and Experian, may have been hit by a fresh data hack and a long-awaited hostage and ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas is not going to take effect before Friday, according to U.S. and Israeli officials. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon every weekday, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you, and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.